As the best-selling book in the world, everyone is familiar with the Bible. But just exactly how did we get the collection of 66 books that make up God's Word? Hello and welcome to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle and my very special guest on the show this time is Robert Suggs, who's here to talk about his new Whitaker House book, The Book That Conquered Time, How the Bible Came to Be. Now, Rob has written or collaborated on more than 60 books. His clients have included New York Times best-selling authors such as Lee Strobel, Mark Batterson, David Jeremiah, and Bruce Wilkinson. He worked with Jeremy and Jennifer Williams on Tenacious, which is being turned into a movie. Rob served for three years as a senior editor at Walk Through the Bible Ministries and as an experienced teacher and preacher. For two decades, Rob contributed many cartoons to Christianity Today and Leadership Journal. A fascinating man. So here he is from the States. Rob, hi. Hey, it's great to be here with you today. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, I've got to ask you, Rob, as I read your biography, how did the cartoons and the ghostwriting start? <laughs> that's a that's an interesting question. Um, all my life, I wanted to be a cartoonist. I grew up drawing little funny pictures and draw- so that led to uh, being a as a, as a strong Christian, drawing cartoons about Christianity in church, and I ended up doing a couple of uh, books based on the magazine cartoons I'd done for Christian magazines. One of the books was It Came From Beneath the Pew, and one of the books was Preacher from the Black Lagoon. So they were kind of takeoffs on 1950s horror movies, but that kind of thing. And um, so through work doing those books, I came to know some editors. And um, one day I talked to one of them and I said, how about if I write something for you? And they said, well, give it a go. And that led to just realizing that uh, writing was much more suited to my gifts than cartooning was, and that I was limited in cartooning to what I could draw. I'm not limited by anything but my vocabulary and my ideas and what I can write. And I felt much more the sense of God moving through me and using me when I would write than when I would draw. Yes, although I think I have to say, I think Preacher from the Black Lagoon sounds fabulous. I, I couldn't resist bringing that one up. Why did you want to write this book? Well, this goes back. This is this was um, when I heard that this was a topic that Whitaker House wanted to publish. I just jumped on it because the Bible has had its hooks in me since I was a very small boy. When I was about four years old, this is one of the earliest memories I have. And for years, I wondered why this memory stuck in my in my mind as it did because it was such a small little vignette. But I was four years old, sitting on the sofa on a Sunday morning, and my father was going to read me my Sunday school lesson from the quarterly. And it was the story of young Samuel when he was in the in the house of Eli, and he would hear the voice in the night calling him, and he would always think it was Eli, and Eli would say, go back to bed. It turned out to be the voice of God. So this happens three times as in a lot of stories for children, things happen three times. You know, there's three bears and three pigs and all those kinds of things. Well, as soon as my dad had finished reading me the story, I jumped up from the sofa and said, now let me tell it to you. And I repeated him the story with great delight. And somehow that just stuck, lodged in my memory. I have realized over the years that's the couple of reasons for that. One of them is that the Bible has something about it that cannot stay on the page. It has to be retold. It has to be shared. So that when we hear a Bible story, it just grabs us and we want to tell someone else. The other thing was, this was the beginning of God reaching out to me and saying, I, I want you to talk about the Bible. I want you to tell the stories that are in the Bible. 
So that that was the beginning of it. And as time went on, I had, of course, deeper experiences with with the scriptures based on the age that I had. So that when I was 16 years old and really committed myself to God in a deeper way, I began to study the Bible and to learn the whole story of it. And you know, then notice that most people don't know the full story of the Bible. And I'm talking now about the story inside the Bible. I've written about the story outside the Bible, the book itself. But just the story of the is- Israel, the story of Moses and David and the prophets, and then Jesus and then Paul. And uh, it, it's always, I, I love teaching the Bible so that from the very beginning, this was my thing. Yeah. And you're right, I think, that um, the Bible is the world's greatest love story. Now, I think that's fabulous. Why, why and to what extent do you think the Bible is the world's greatest love story? Because this is particularly coming out of the ancient world, such a unique take that God is love. If you read about the ancient gods that competed with our God, the ancient ideas of God, they were never loving gods. They were threatening gods. They were gods of fertility and gods of bring me a sacrifice and gods of, and this is a God that even in the Old Testament is ultimately a God of love. Throughout the Old Testament, people are coming to realize that throughout the Old Testament from the beginning from Abraham um, beginning to understand that God loves him all the way through to the prophets who say, what does God require of man but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with his God? So, and then God finally expresses his love in the greatest way by sending his son. So it this is, when you think about this, comes out of the ancient world, which is a rather vicious and difficult place to live. The idea that they could look above and say, this is, Despite all of our disease, all of our wars, all of the problems we have, God is a God of love. I don't think we could have come up with that on our own. It had to be revealed to us. Someone was talking to me the other day and saying how much they loved and admired ancient Rome. And my response was, why? It's, uh, apart from the fact it gave us Latin and some law and some great literature, it must have been in a very brutal society. And in fact, it was. Can I ask you, what's been the place of the Bible in our culture? Now, that's an interesting question, too, because... This is a point that we make in the book, is that if you took all the Bibles away, and that, you know, God help us if they did, but most of us have 10 Bibles on our shelves, but if you took all those Bibles away, and nobody had one, and we were limited to what we remembered, and so forth, boy, we'd be in a bad way. But the Bible's influence would not shrink much, because our whole, the foundation of Western culture is built on the ideas of the Bible. Our court systems are built on the idea of justice, of of doing good, of lifting up the poor people and, and, and having all these things come out of the teaching of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, and the biblical ideal of basically that the world is a good place where people can rise above, you know, the wars and so forth that we have is a biblical idea. And most people don't realize just how deeply the Bible is embedded in our consciousness, right down to the fact that there's a million expressions we use every day that we don't even realize come from the Bible. Just uh, I can, you could think of you know, a lot of them, I'm sure, but I think we have a, even a list of them in the book. But there's the list is hundreds and hundreds of things that people say when someone says "cast your bread upon the waters" or someone says "profit in his own country is without honor" or or something like that. You know, all of those things come out of the Bible. 
And they're just ideas and cliches that we spout. Well, where do we get those ideas? We get them from God's Word. Yes, for sure. Can we come and have a look at how the Bible was actually put together, please, for a bit? Because this is a fascinating part of your book. I wonder, let's start with the Old Testament. Um, How did our Old Testament become canon? How was it put together? That is a a more difficult subject, actually, than the New Testament, because we have a really good idea of how the New Testament became canon, because this is in, you know, post 0 AD or 1 AD, actually. The Old Testament canon became, uh, became what we have today over a longer period of time. And there were fewer things written, but the things that were written were important. They were written by scribes because very few people could write, and they were held on to. And they held on to the writings that enshrined their history. They held on to the writings that they believed revealed what God's will were, was for them. So the book of Deuteronomy is is basically, in a lot of ways, an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Well, in Exodus 20 gives us the Ten Commandments in brief. So Deuteronomy takes each of those commandments and breaks them down. It begins to say, what are the implications of these? People hung on to that. So much as in the New Testament, in many ways, actually, the power and truth of the Old Testament books is what caused them to be preserved. There were other books. And there are other books we have today from the Old Testament period. The Dead Sea Scrolls contained a lot of extra biblical books. Those are found in about 49, I believe, 1948 or 9, in, in a cave. And just almost not completely preserved. They're almost dust, but they're able to read them. And, you know, a, a complete book of Isaiah was in there, but also a lot of non-biblical things. We can look at them now and we can say, the books that were Old Testament canon were perfectly chosen. Prophets they chose, the histories that they chose, the poetry and psalm and proverbs that they chose were perfectly chosen. And they made good decisions when they, they said, these are the ones that are canon. Yes, I was going to ask you what the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls contributed to our understanding of the Old Testament, but you've probably already partly answered that, I think. Well, we mentioned it. There's a lot of ways to think about the uh, the Old Testament. One of my brothers was telling me the other day that he read from one theologian that the Old Testament, that the Dead Sea Scrolls are overrated. <laughs> and I have a hard time seeing that. But it's true that the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, though they were written at the time of Jesus, don't tell us much about Christianity because they were written off in the very time when Jesus was teaching and traveling. They were written at that time, but they were written off to the side by a group of people called the Essenes, who were kind of a separatist group trying to keep themselves pure from society. But what they do is they preserve a lot of writings from that time that we didn't have, or more important even than that, they preserve original versions of these writings, or at least versions from the first century. We don't have much, if anything at all, that exists physically from the first century. We have copies of it, but we don't have the physical artifact. So when we see a book of Isaiah, you know, which of course was already old by that time, but we know now what it looked like in Jesus's time. We have Jesus's Isaiah. But nobody could say that people have changed it over time, which is a familiar argument. Nobody could say, well, hasn't that been copied and then copied over and then copied over so that we don't know what it really said. No, we know exactly what it said because we have what was found in the cave at Kubrun. And, 
Yes, and I, th I think the Jewish scribes were incredibly rigorous, weren't they, about copying the Old Testament books, um, almost to the point where yes, if, they if, were. There, if there was one small mistake, the whole thing got destroyed. This is, this is true. Uh, the Old Testament scribes were extremely rigorous. Uh, every word had to be exactly alike, and they were they were detailed about it. The New Testament writers weren't quite as rigorous, actually, because there were more people by this time that could read and write, and there was more of a sense of urgency, an evangelical urgency to spread the writings, to make copies that go to all the churches. So there would be little errors, but the little errors were never important things. They were the word the or the word and. I mean, not theological things. They were tiny little, whether this I was dotted and this T is crossed. But the Old Testament, uh, you know, there, there's there's no one really that, that challenges what we have in our Old Testaments as being original and, or being accurate. Let's come on to the New Testament, uh, equally as fascinating a subject. Um, the $3 million question, when were our Gospels written? Does anybody really know? We have, by this time, much better guesses than we used to. And it's down to a year or two here and there in some cases. Uh, the big event of the time was in 70 AD. The Romans destroyed the, the temple of Jerusalem. And this is around the same time the Gospels were written. So you would think that would have to be reflected in the Gospels if they were written after that, after 70. And yet, it's never really mentioned. The temple it plays a huge role in all four Gospels. There's no mention of, well, later, not much later, the temple was destroyed or 40 years later or anything like that. So right there, that tells us that probably when Mark was written, the very first gospel, and the one that the next two, Matthew and Luke, were substantially based on, Mark was written almost certainly before the temple was destroyed, which puts it in the 60s. Now, Jesus is crucified between 30 and 33. There's differences some people will say 29 or 30. Some people will say 33. There's a lot of intricate reasoning based on what we know about the Passover that was being held when Jesus was crucified and attempts to date it from that. But whatever, right around 30 is when Jesus was crucified. So right in the 60s, 30 years later, is when the first gospel is being written. But earlier than that, Paul's letters. Now, because of the order in our Bible, the gospels and then Paul's letters, there's kind of a natural tendency to think the Gospels are written, and then Paul comes along. And Paul was after, chronologically, the, the events of the Gospels, but he wrote before the Gospels were written. Now, that sounds a little confusing, but what it means is that when Paul talks about the resurrection, he's talking about it within 20 years of Jesus. So, in other words, this would be like you and me talking about something that happened in 2001, which the obvious thing for an American would be the 911 attacks in New York City. So I remember that quite well. I, mean, I remember every little detail about how it changed my life when, when the 911 attacks happened. But so when Paul was writing about the resurrection of Christ, and he says that there are many witnesses still alive who saw it, although some have passed away, he's saying something that he would have been put down very quickly if he was making it up. So that's, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, and he also mentions there are 500 witnesses who'll back him up. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And, you know, he's not saying any of it in such a way that he's arguing. He's just kind of mentioning it. By the way. Because it's yeah. something that everybody takes for granted 
in his time. There was substantially no argument that this man rose from the dead and was seen by many people. And there are a lot of attempts today to try to make it into a legend. Uh, you know, C.S. Lewis famously said, some of us have spent our lives studying legends in ancient oral tradition. This is nothing like a legend, the story of Jesus. It, it takes a lot more than 20 years for something to become a legend. It takes hundreds of years. So that's exactly right. Yes, and I guess anybody, the Romans could have produced the body, but um, we're still trying to find the body, aren't we, 2,000 years and plus later? Yes. You you write the top, prior, the top priority of the early Christians was probably not to write things down. Now, why was that? Well, because they were like us, and they lived in the world of today, which was for them today, that this is the church, and Jesus is coming back any day now to them. They really thoroughly believed, because Jesus didn't give them a firm idea of what it was. They just kind of assumed he would come back for them personally. So there was no real need to write anything down because people knew the story. And they recited the story over and over again. And this is something that's very interesting also, is that I think most people would agree, most scholars would agree, that before they wrote it down, the gospel stories were repeated. And they bear the mark of things, or particularly when you go back into the original language, which is Greek, which is, uh, I think, Koine, everyday Greek, but was spoken by Jesus in Aramaic. So Jesus spoke in Aramaic, which was a dialect of Hebrew, and then that was translated into Greek for the writing. But there's a lot of interesting studying being done now in which people are taking the Aramaic translations of the Greek and see what would this sound like in Aramaic? And they could see the traces of the Aramaic through the Greek, which wow. gives it even more integrity, which mm -hmm. tells you this was not made up. So the early Christians were not real concerned to write it down at first. And then as people began to die, as, um, as their big, the gospel began to spread to places where no one knew Jesus, people want to know what were the facts. What was his life like? What did he teach? That needed to be written down. And so this guy, Mark, comes along, who is not an original disciple, but may have had some memories of the disciples from his childhood because his mother apparently knew Jesus. Mark is a disciple of Peter, later Peter in Rome, maybe. And he takes down, we think, Peter's reminiscences. So Matthew and Luke picked those up. So this is one of the things that fascinates me. So much of the Gospels, more than we realize, are coming through the lids of Peter, Peter the disciple. And that's why he's such a compelling character, is because we're seeing through his eyes. Yes. Now, what sort of evidence do we have that the New Testament writings were already well-known and accepted by the early 2nd century? I mean, I'm thinking of people like Clement of Rome and Polycarp. Yes. Well, you just, you just said it. Um, we, this is one thing that's, that's uh, most people don't realize as they say, you know, well, how do we know where these writings came from and so forth and they weren't changed? Well, one of the ways we know is that they were being copied all over the place, so from Egypt to Antioch to Greece to Rome, all around, you know, to the very rim of Europe and throughout Central Asia, these Gospels were being spread. And... Um, as they copied them, we're able to find ancient copies and compare, say, what they wrote in Antioch to what they wrote in Alexandria, Egypt. And if they read exactly the same, 
they haven't changed because they would have changed differently. Does that make sense? Mm, in other sure. words, yeah, if, if we play that telephone game, and we do it in two different places, and, and you, you, it's if the message matches substantially, then that means us, it hasn't been changed. But we know from Clement of Alexandria and some of the early early church fathers, they quote the Bible over and over. They quote the New Testament writings, and occasionally they re, they quote other writings. Every now and then they'll quote something we don't even know where it came from. But for through their quotations from the Gospels, we know that that they had the Gospels early on. What are some of the books that weren't included in our New Testament canon, and, and why were they excluded? That's an interesting subject, too, that we talk a lot about. There aren't a large number of them, but we do have some. And uh, the, the most common reason that people know is heresy. Well, what was heresy? It was anything that was being taught that Jesus didn't teach, and that early disciples didn't teach. And Gnosticism was the most famous one. So Gnosticism was a kind of competing philosophy that had, there were many, uh, it was a big kind of amorphous set of ideas that can't easily be limited. But the big one was that everything you see is material is evil, and everything that is of the Spirit is good. Well, that's not a biblical teaching at all. God teaches us that the body and all the things he gave us are good, and that not everything of the Spirit is good. Some of that is evil. So Gnosticism took that view of it, and there was an attempt to write a lot of Gospels that had these Gnostic ideas. So in some of them, Jesus is not a real person. He is a spirit who manifests himself as a human, but it's an illusion. Well, we know that's a heresy. The Gospels take great pains to tell us that Jesus had a body, and that he showed the body to the disciples when he came back. So, so that that's one problem with that. Yes. Now, when was our New Testament canon finalized, Robert? If we can New put Testament it like that. I, know, I mean, I know that's not a very good expression to use, but at what point did it come together? It began, this is probably the central part of the book. Uh, the, the book, the subtitle of the book is How the Bible Came to Be. So the New Testament is what most concerns Christians. So this idea of when did we know we had the New Testament is very central. And other people have written books on it because it's such a big question. What surprised me in my research was how quickly it came together. I figured, well, probably about 200. They were using still a lot of other books. And that's really not true. Very quickly, they seemed to they seemed to have a corporate memory of which books were actually connected to the disciples. They knew that Mark was, uh, you know, it was an associate of Peter. They knew who Matthew was. They knew that Luke was the guy who traveled with Paul the physician, and they knew who John was. It was a disciple. And so those books were given the greatest authority. In the early days, if the books were connected to the disciples, including Paul, and if they carried truth that people were using in the churches, and the churches were using these books, and they were considered the most important. So just by, by use these were the books that, as people begin to bundle them and put them together, these are the books that people kept together. And you'll find that in the, uh, some of the earliest full collections of the New Testament, there's a couple of others they would put at the end. I think the Shepherd of Hermas is one of them. You can read the Shepherd of Hermas on the internet. It's um, it's a kind of an early New Testament type book, 
but we don't consider it canonical. There's nothing wrong in it, but it's just not what we consider that God inspired. So they would put some of these at the end and say, you may want to read these, but they're not really considered. And generally, the, the stuff at the beginning of the New Testament, the Gospels, and then Paul, and then John and Peter, etc., were the ones accepted the quickest. And the ones at the end, including Revelation, uh, Second and Third John, some of those are were in Second Peter, in particular, were the ones that were the most controversial to the early church, just because they weren't sure about the source of those books. Yes, I wonder why there was so much debate about the inclusion of Revelation in the New Testament. It seemed to have been um, debated for centuries, wasn't it? It was. It's the fact, I think, that it's an apocalyptic book. This is a literary form that was already very popular. Uh, Daniel is an apocalyptic book in the Old Testament, and there are many other apocalyptic books floating around. So this was a Christian version of one, and I think because of the language in it, the heavy symbolism in it, people had trouble seeing how it fit in with the very practical theological teaching of Paul or the very historical material in the Gospels and in Acts. So Revelation would, seems to be about a time yet to come, and it seems to foretell all these things, but there are many people. And today it's the same way. There's many people that, that read it and just don't really know what to do with the book of Revelation. So it's it's put last, and yet that's the perfect place, isn't it, for Revelation to be? Oh, absolutely, because it sums up the whole yeah. Bible. Yes, it, it sums it up. Yep. It begin the Genesis begins with cre the creation of the of the universe, and Revelation ends with the closing of the book and the closing of time. Yes, I mean you couldn't you couldn't have a Bible without Revelation, and in my That's humble right. opinion, um, in the few minutes we've got left, Robert, there's so many more questions. I mean, you go into the history of all the English translations, which I found fascinating: Wycliffe and. Um, Coverdale, Geneva, the Bishop's Bible. Can I ask you, how did we get the King James Bible? Oh, boy. This is a favorite subject for me. And I find that people really have very different... People are almost polarized by the King James today. Talked to a lady at church yesterday. She said, well, I can't read anything but the King James. The, the language is just so beautiful, and, and I don't trust the other translations. And then I talked to someone else on another radio show last week, and he said, I just can't handle the King James. I, I can't understand what it's saying. <laughs> but the King James, nobody could deny that it was God's Bible for about 500 years. We, we had its 500 anniversary just a few years ago, and it was written in the time of Shakespeare. So when has there ever been a more exalted and beautiful language, English language, than the time of Shakespeare? It's a Greek language was at its peak when the New Testament was written. God has a way of waiting until the fullness of time to do the perfect thing. Jesus came at the perfect time. Greek language spread throughout the, the empire at just the right time to spread the gospel. The Romans created the roads at just the right time for Paul to travel on them. And then in the 1600s, we have this Shakespearean language and a whole bunch of scholars that came together under King James, and they made a good translation of the Bible, not a perfect one. It has flaws in it. I mean, it has, it has. Uh, now that's that's controversial to some, but the scholars just frankly find some of the words in it are are not perfect words. It's certainly for today they're not. If you say uh, the greatest of these is charity, it sounds like charities that you know like charities that help people or something, but the word we use today is love. 
The greatest of these is love. So language changes. It's the wineskins that the new wine comes in. And that's why tr new translations are required at every different time. But I want to tell you one more thing about the King James. And uh, that is that when it came along, it, it largely replaced a forgotten Bible called the Bishop's Bible. And the Bishop's Bible is what the English church was using. And I used some examples in the book. I don't have them in front of me, but just how flat the language was. Here it was written maybe seven, eight, nine years or whatever it was before the King James. But the language isn't exalted at all. It's just kind of flat. It's dead. And the King James, when you put it next to it, you say, aha, this is what God wanted us to have. So it was the King James Bible that took off. It has this beautiful language. It is not really so much the these and the thous as um, and the and lo and behold and all those works. It's the cadence and the rhythm. They wrote in a poetic rhythm. So it is our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. You hear the rhythm in there. It makes it where it's easy. It's fun to recite in church. And for a generation like mine, we memorized the King James. It was easy to memorize because it's poetic and the rhythm is in it. Uh, so I have a great deal of affection for the King James Bible. Mm. Oh, I think we all do. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I, I certainly do. Um, no question. Yeah. Even though I, know I mainly use a modern translation because it's easy to understand, but I would not want to dispute the importance of the KJV or its historical no. role, no. whatever. Oh, gosh, Robert, we could talk on and on and on. It's been fascinating. Thank you so much for that half hour. Robert Suggs, the new book from Whitaker House is called The Book That Conquered Time, How the Bible Came to Be. Thank you so much, Robert, for your time. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Robert, bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com. <laughs>